in practical language, we're interested in pushing back the doors of civilization. We're much older as a species, and our work has taken us around the world because what we found in Egypt also corresponds to what we found in Mexico, in Peru, even in China and Japan. We know that the human race is not here, here for six, 7,000 years, but upwards of 36,000 years plus, and we now have the artifacts. And this is so thrilling to talk to you, to tell people we can push back the doors of history. And at the same time, we can use that historic knowledge of our ancestors who believed that there were powers in the greater universe to prepare for what I would call a quantum leap into the future. Welcome to Far Out with Faust, everybody. I am Faust Chicho, and today I am honored and excited to be joined by Drs. JJ and Desiree Hertek. Let me tell you about these two extraordinary human beings and what they've been up to. Uh, Drs. JJ and Desiree are founders and directors of the Academy for Future Science. That is a prestigious, prestigious academy that I've been reading about for years. It's a United Nations NGO, which means non-government organization. It's associated with the ECO, ECOSOC, which stands for the Economic and Social Council, and DPI, the Department of Public Information. Dr. JJ has earned two PhDs, one from the University of California and one from the University of Minnesota. Their most recent published papers include Reexamining Quantum Gravity, Examining the Existence of the Multiverse, and Universal Scaling Laws in Quantum Theory and Cosmology, which was co-written with a physicist named Dr. Elizabeth Rauscher. Their most recent book is entitled Mind Dynamics in Space and Time, which I have a copy somewhere and I have, I can't seem to find it amazingly. It's highlighted and everything. Um, that's also with Dr. There it is with Dr. Elizabeth Rauscher. She's formerly of Lawrence Livermore Lab on theoretical and applied work in physics and parapsychology at the University of California. In the past, Dr. JJ was director of Technology Marketing Analysis Corporation in San Francisco, which sponsored uh, RETSI, which stands for Renewable Energy Technology Symposiums. He's worked with uh, almost half a dozen government agencies in, in addition to NASA, and he's worked to bring together over a thousand engineers and scientists and industrial leaders to exchange information and ideas on renewable energy technology. In the 1980s and 1990s, he was the director of Laser Tech in Brazil, which developed lasers for industrial application and for the study of rapidly changing environmental conditions, particularly in the study of deforestation and soil conditions in Brazilian farmlands and throughout Amazon. These two have traveled the world. I've, I've listened to them speak on more than one occasion and just tremendous minds. I'm so excited to bring them to you guys. And thank you guys so much for beaming in. Um, if I missed anything, in, please... Feel, um, feel free to fill in fill in the gaps if I missed anything. Thank you so much. Yes, we covered the spectrum from archaeology, anthropology to space science and space law, and we're very privileged, truly, really, to work in so many countries throughout the world. So, what we share with you is really our own independent research. It doesn't represent uh, the UN or NASA or any major consortium of powers that be. But as independent scientists and futurists, we were really intrigued with what is going on now, the rediscovery of the ancient, ancient past of the human race and the potential, the great positive potential of future civilization in outer space. And so behind us, as we're seeing now, we see a picture by the great Canadian <laughs> artist who's one of my students, Derek Bolin, who was commissioned by Prince Charles, who represents the Commonwealth back in the 1990s. And what you see here is the building blocks of exo-industrialization, exo-sociology in outer space, where we and our children will have the opportunity in the second part of the 21st century to build cities and become really space citizens in the real sense of the word. Well, one of the other things is we really just got back from Egypt, but it's a place that we've been going to since with me since the 80s, Dr. Ertak actually went as early as the 60s. 
And we uh, also worked on a book with an associate of ours called Giza's Industrial Complex. And what we talk about in here is the technology maybe behind Egypt. And we believe some of that technology was hydrogen. And right now, if we shift, and we're in the middle of doing this of COP28, if we shift from fossil fuels to hydrogen, we're going to really help planet Earth. So that's part mm -hmm. of our mission is to show how important hydrogen is. But it's so simple, too. Uh, you, Egypt could have done it with solar, with water, and they had metals and technologies. In fact, inside the ascending passage of the Great Pyramid, if you walk up there, and I know many of your uh, listeners probably have done that, but they don't look on the sides. On each side of those steps is little cutouts, and they're one on one side, one on the other, the same exact positionings. If they had what we call today cathodes and anodes, they could have used that, and this is the work of Christopher Dunn and our own research, uh, probably made hydrogen gas, which can be used, as we know, for cars. But in addition to that, people are starting to drink hydrogen water. I don't know if you, you've heard about that. Yes, you know, I have. It's healthy. And we use hydrogen for agriculture. And what did Egypt have? A ton of agriculture. So, I mean, it's so simple. We need to be moving in the direction we believe that the ancient Egyptians did. So when people think of ancient Egypt, they think of great pyramids, great temples, et cetera, et cetera. But we have found inside the pyramids, underneath the pyramids, along the Nile configuration of geometric forms that suggest that the ancient Egyptians were well aware of how to use and produce hydrogen. And in our book, we also show, you can look uh, clearly at this, I'm pointing to you in the area of Fayum, just south of the pyramids in Giza, Egypt, this colossal grid system of 3,000 rooms. We figure these were cells holding energy of some sort that the energies were processed hydraulically and fed through the underground labyrinthian system of the Giza Plateau to do these remarkable feats of building large buildings through hydraulic energy. So, again, these are questions that were up for grabs for the last several thousand years, but now we have the tools, remote sensing tools or airborne and ground penetrating radar to actually do our own investigations. And Desiree and I have put together a remarkable book that everyone who sees your program should have, Giza's Industrial Complex. Well, let me show you just a few other pictures. So this is the sure. Al-Fayyum Pyramid that we're standing in front of. And if you go into the center of that pyramid, you find water. And wow. recently there was an evidence from one of the universities saying, oh, now we know how the pyramids were built. They were just saying, you know, how the stones were moved because water was key. That's what they're saying. And now you go over to Mexico, and I will align the importance of mm -hmm. understanding uh, not only the star alignments, but also the technology between Mexico and Egypt. And you look underneath El Castillo, which is in the area of Chichen Itza. And what did they find? They built this huge pyramid on top of water. So, you know, I know you've worked or you really like uh, Dr. Emoto, uh, right. I mean, he's the one that says you put positive energy right. out. Yeah, you have it right on you. And water gives you a biological signature. So the ancient Egyptians knew that water has a vibratory flux. And if you have enough water under certain conditions, there is an energy current that can be used. And apparently they were able to tap into a unique use of hydrology. And I want to show just one final picture. From sure. And that is this ancient, uh, we'll say really old uh, print. And you can see this is Lake Morris, which is right by uh, the Fayum Pyramid. And they believe these pyramids existed that went so much into the underwater area as above. That's what the research mm. legends had said. The, there were two pyramids in Lake Morris. This is a saltwater lake. Wow. And uh, the pyramids went down. And you can see there's almost like a, a a type of lighthouse on the top. So these, you know, there was something going on This there. lithograph in the 19th century was done by Russian Egyptologists. Hmm. And we are privileged really to gain the use of it in our book, which is success of how they were able to engineer a whole labyrinthian complex underneath the Giza Plateau, avoid the problems of overheating in the deserts of Egypt, 
and at the same time showing us how they could do engineering of food fabric, et cetera, underneath the ground. And speaking of the interior of the Great Pyramid, this is a picture, an actual picture Desiree took when we did wow. musical experiments inside the Grand Gallery of the Great Pyramid. Suddenly, when I was making certain mantric tones of ancient Egyptian, ancient uh, Hebrew vocalization, suddenly the whole interior of the, the pyramid wow. lit up like golden light, a Stanley Conlmer wave was activated. So the question is, how is that possible unless there was a vibratory frequency that the Egyptians knew and captured in the mathematical and the architectural design, very similar to the piezoelectric effect of certain crystals when you harmonize they create an energy spark. And just one more point, even though we're talking technology, we also believe initiation was part of that because mm -hmm. the water could have been used, like I said, people are drinking hydrogen water. I have a lot of friends that buy those machines and drink them. I mean, it's part of like a healing energy process. And this is exactly what Emoto was also showing when you put positive thoughts, certain energies out you're able to literally heal and transform your body because your body is like 65 That's to 75% right. water, depending on age. So it's an amazing technology that, and we'll say element of nature, hydrogen, the most abundant gas in the whole universe. So Faust, what the Egyptians had are these lakes for bathing and medical purposes along with the pyramids. And we think that wow. there was energized water in that. And so people would go in and literally be kind of initiated in those lakes. So what would we call this type of water? Electrified water. We call it earth milk. We could call it a different uh, terminology depending upon the era of history we look back. But all the great minds of Greece and Rome, particularly Pythagoras, Homer, the great writer, philosopher, all went to study in Egypt. Why did they mm -hmm. go to study in Egypt? We were told in the Coptic text recently uncovered in 1945 to 47 called Asclepius that Egypt was once the schoolhouse of the gods. And when the knowledge was lost, when Egypt lost its spirituality, the gods went back to heaven and Egypt became the land of the corpses. So in practical language, we're interested in pushing back the doors of civilization. We're much older as a species and our work has taken us around the world because what we found in Egypt also corresponds to what we found in Mexico, in Peru, even in China and Japan, we know that the human race is not here for six, 7,000 years, but upwards of 36,000 years plus, and we now have the artifacts. And this is so thrilling to talk to you, to tell people we can push back the doors of history. And at the same time, we can use that historic knowledge of our ancestors who believed that there were powers in the greater universe to prepare for what I would call a quantum leap into the future. Yes, because it's happening. <laughs> so, one way or the other, we, you know, we're 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 taking the leap. It's just a question of how prepared we all are. Um, and and this answers so many questions for me because, you know, people seem to understand obviously that that I mean, most people there are skeptics, you know, everywhere who who you know think that the pyramids were built by hundred people pulling stones, <laughs> um, which is crazy. Um, but you know. People, the, the debate is very much like, you know, we know they had a technology that we don't, you know, and is it cymatic? Is it, is it sound? Is it, it's probably sound and water. I mean, you know, one of the, one of the greatest ways to, to measure sound is using cymatics and, and using water, but you, you can't deny the power of that. And, uh, and, uh, and I, and I, and this is the first I'm being exposed to this, to the, uh, the hydro, hydropower of this, probably you know the way it would have been used so it's 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 mind-blowing but it but it fills in so many gaps for me it makes a lot of sense um, yeah so well if we can say uh dr hertak is on uh it was uh called the mystery of the sphinx i think you can just find it for free now on youtube there's a big show back when and it has charlton heston as the commentator and it was sponsored by our good friends john anthony west and boris saeed and he, you know, it, the whole principle in there was the fact that the stones themselves that could have been levitated mm -hmm. by sound frequencies. Of course, the show itself only shows these little pebbles. But, you know, if you had some sort of, you can say, UFO 
sitting on top and there's this big frequency, you can levitate that energy. And we totally are into cymatics that sound is geometry and geometry is sound. In fact, our other recent book is called Sound Book, which you can get. And we do talk about sound in the pyramids. because In terms of acoustical physics, this is the most important area that's been overlooked. Hmm. I'm showing you in the audience now a picture from Egypt where my finger is pointing is a little plastic pyramid that the Japanese tried to build in the 1970s using sleds. It's stone, actually, but that's as far as they could get. Ah. It was so ridiculous that the Egyptian government forced the Nippon Corporation to take it down. We actually have it on our YouTube page, Pisa Vinok TV, showing the original building of it. Oh, cool. Oh, cool. We'll make sure to include a link to it. This is a small miniature and really grotesque compared to the gargantuan pyramids you see in the background. Mm. So obviously the Egyptians knew hydraulics. They use water hydraulics, according to some of our colleagues at uh, Los Alamos National Lab in New Mexico. And we find that the, the water bed would allow for the ability to build upwards and scale upwards through a hyd- hydraulic pump system. This is illustrated in a German documentary called the Cheops Luga, which is translated the lie of Cheops, which is, shall we say, showing that there was an ingenuity of using water-related physics. And one of the things that we also did was we're one of the uh, co-founders as part of the shore expedition of the tomb of Osiris. So if you take the uh, Great Pyramid and then the Middle Pyramid and you draw a little mark between them, that's where the tomb of Osiris is. And 100 feet down, you actually find this uh, sarcophagus and around it is a moat. And for the most part, the reason why we were able to find it, it was a drought period at that time. So the Mm. water levels were really low. But normally there's water all underneath the plateau. People don't realize it 100 feet down. And so you can see uh, myself and... and You point with my finger to the lid of the pyramid with my tennis shoe on top of it. Of the two, yeah. Showing that the water levels of the Nile were low enough that we could scrape the surface down about three inches and come across the lid of the Osiris tomb, as it was called. In 1997, two years before Zai Hawass, the famous Egyptian Egyptologist, announced on Fox television, oh, they found the tomb of Osiris. But he said in the same newscast, oh, by the way, there was a group two years before that was that was hmm. our group that didn't have permission to excavate, but to find through the use of radar, musical instrumentation, other measuring and, devices. And remote sensing technology. So this is a whole new threshold going back much older than dynastic Egypt to show that science was used. And that's why we think it's unique because, you know, you really wouldn't bury somebody down, even if it was Osiris. 100 feet deep. There's no logic to that. There is some sarcophaguses a little higher up from there. That might have been, you know, people's tombs. But, you know, they've never officially found uh, in the three pyramids any mummy, uh, you know, inside the pyramids. Uh, they said there might have been one in the small pyramid, and, but it got lost in a ship going to the UK at one point, you know, hundreds of years ago. <laughs> but the bottom line, we think a lot of this was for gas and certain types of water. Here again, we're showing one of the pictures from our book, Giza's Industrial yeah. Complex. That's where the tomb of us My finger is right on the lower tomb. Yeah. So mm-hmm. how could you get down so far yeah. and have such remarkable walkways? without lights, unless you had artificial lights or the ability to use gases. And that's the thing. Maybe they were storing certain types of energy or gas in these tombs. Like the, there's something called the Serapium, which they call them the tomb of the Apis bulls, these huge bulls. But when someone broke one open, because many of them had already been opened by, we'll say, tomb robbers, yeah. they found nothing but white powder. And, uh, you know, no one knows what that was. And it was... Hmm like almost 100 years ago, so we can't analyze well, it today. Word, Egypt and the word chemistry comes from chem, K-H-E-M, which yes. is the Egyptian word really for the chemistry of life that the Egyptians were noted for. So what is the bottom line well, here? I was going to say pyramid also means fire in the middle. Right, that's the cultivation of a paraphysical mm-hmm. energy stream that would balance the human and the we would call the cosmic forces in perfect balance. So what is the bottom line here? It's really the realization that we're much older as a species, that the Egyptians also, besides their architecture, gave us a roadmap to the stars, 
Osiris is connected with the belt of Orion. Mm. And now we're finding through other investigations that there is intelligent life in the universe. Even Carl Sagan hypothesized this before he died. And we're beginning to put in the pieces, pieces, mm -hmm. uh, the, the components of a much larger universe that's connected with the pyramids as chronomonitors or time measuring devices. And we do think it could go back at least 12,000, 18,000, if not 36,000 years ago. Our, we have a good friend who's an Egyptologist living there. He's Egyptian and he's claiming 36,000 as well. Wow. So that's Atlantis, that's Lumeria mm -hmm. or Mu. Yes. Yes. Um, I, I, I just, it's something that you, that you said that you, that we went over, but I, I but I want to make sure that I understood it right. The, the picture that, that you took Desiree, uh, when you guys were in that, the pyramid, when, when you use sound to activate, are you saying that, that the, the, the chant and the, the tones that you were creating is what activated the light? That, yes. That's, that's that's incredible. That's yes. amazing. What we're what? saying, and this was replicated by our study in the pyramids of Yucatan, Mexico, also, that when we use certain sounds at high frequencies, and we were able to do this with a good singer or speaker such as myself, I had musical background training, mm -hmm. that you could actually vibrate a sound so that that sound resonating as a hypertone or overtone mm -hmm would produce a paraphysical burst of light. And that could be sustained by the larger volume of pyramids in that particular sacred wow. geometry. Then you could have really a validation of a source of energy that could change consciousness, elevate the pine, uh, pineal. The, the pineal gland, pineal gland yeah. uh, and produce really a remarkable artistic consequence which I believe the Egyptians were able to do to create, as it were, a series of temples along the Nile that correspond to the seven chakras or energy centers of the human body. How could they do this? They had the experimental feedback system. They had the biofeedback system. They had the musical system. They had the higher physics. And I believe they had a higher or more complex periodic charge of how the master of the elements. Well, I also think you have to talk about it. We mentioned in the Giza's industrial complex, especially further south by Luxor, that, you know, if you look at the King's Chamber, red granite, if you look at a lot of the other structures, limestone, I mean, these are all kind of crystalline particles that if you hit the right resonant frequencies, you're able to activate some of those particles. And that's what we really think happens. Uh, there people also meditate inside mm -hmm. the king's chamber of course it's harder to do <laughs> as years go by but i had an experience where literally the walls dropped away and i was out there in space now what's interesting a friend of mine about three years later had the exact same experience wow and then we recorded some things with our associate sig goldberg from gaia tv called deep space mm -hmm. the egyptian section of that and someone else had the exact same experience i said sid you put him in you didn't put me wow. saying the same thing but that was okay but it, so i now know three people who had that exact experience by meditating by chanting a transformation takes place and whether you see the light or you see the walls drop away these are things that happen and plus you have you know mm -hmm. all these tons of stone pressing upon each other in perfect resonance, so to speak, yeah. and then you add your own resonance and changes take place. So this suggests that we are here locally in our brain, but we're non-locally outside of our brain through the experience of consciousness projection. And this is illustrated in several of our books, including the recent one, Sound, where we were number one on Amazon for a few weeks. In the nice. physics of acoustics and sound, yeah. And this goes into work now with Ellen Howarth, who did some work with NASA, in sound production and others, showing that we were working with really sophisticated sound engineers, Egyptologists, musicologists, archaeologists. So you need a whole team effort. And this is what the Shore expedition accomplished in 1997. Dr. Joe Shore, a chemist, was able to support and collect experts in the field who would go there and test, as it were, the ethers to see whether or not human-generated sounds were, shall we say, behind the architectural schematics of all of these rooms inside the Great Pyramid that, in our logic, represent different parts of the human anatomy. And I want to say one thing that we did find out, because we did bring 
testing in there. Uh, as a Thomas DeBecky also did that on a professional scale. We did it on a, on a uh, more individual scale that when you get frequencies inside the king's chamber of the Great Pyramid, mm-hmm. you know, you think there would be overtone sounds because we did pink noise and white noise and these sweeps. But what we also got was undertones. So there was frequencies going down. So things you don't ultimately even hear, we feel that the brain itself goes into a kind of alpha frequency because of the sounds and the frequencies that are coming into this undertone vibration. So it's a very interesting. um, We're talking below 20 hertz. Hmm. So we're talking about the normal spectrum of 20 to 20,000 hertz, but now the undertones much lower that could be. Not heard. Not heard, yeah. but only by well, the, the ear of elephants or certain animals. So how did the Egyptians engineer into this pyramid of stone such amazing relationships, let alone the mathematics of where our planet is in relationship to our sun? This is why some believe the Great Pyramid is the Bible in stone. For skeptics, it's a great challenge. And this is why Stanford Research Institute, in the 1970s, to my colleague Lambert Dolphin, a noted engineer, went to Egypt to do the probes underneath the Sphinx and suggest that there's more underneath the pyramids and the Sphinx than above. So we're just mm. beginning to take off, as it were, the covers of a much yes. ancient civilization that may have built some sort of city structure or academy of study underneath the Giza Plateau, which would have attracted Comer, Pythagoras, um, mm. Herodotus, you know, you name it. All of the great minds of the ancient world went to Egypt, just like Americans and Japanese and Germans and Russians, mm-hmm. because it's fascinating. No one can explain how so many disciplines or ideas can come together so perfectly. But water was key. That's what we would add. Go ahead. I, I believe it. Um, I, it's amazing what's what's finally coming out. You know, I, 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 I love Graham Hancock and I know he's, he's become more mainstream thanks to his, you know, he's relentless with, with what he insists on, but he, he's not an archaeologist. So, you know, he gets a lot of pushback, but he's dogged in his pursuit of, of, of these, what's underneath, you know, these things and, and that show that he did ancient, ancient apocalypse was it called i think i don't know if you guys caught it on netflix but it was yes. fascinating and, and and a lot of they brought in a lot of technology and they're showing just this is a, like an onion there are layers and layers and layers and and i believe you know all of our history is underground i believe there's a lot underground that most people probably would never believe is underground but you know i i just did a special in on antarctica you know and i and i lead with the fact that so skeptics understand Beneath that mile and a half of ice in, in Antarctica it is what we now know to be the most active volcanic region on the planet. And they estimate temperatures are, you know, range between 65 and 75 degrees Fahrenheit, which is balmy. And I'm like, so, you know, when you're talking about, and it's cavernous, they know now from the radar, it's already hollow. So it's like, people are like, well, it's nothing but ice. I'm like, listen, that's, that's just what's on top. You know what I mean? You don't, you have no idea what's underneath the, the ice and, and underground. I just think it's, um, I think a lot of civil, the ancient civilizations were forced underground, you know, and some of them stayed there and cause they know how to stay there. And, and it's a big, you know, it's a big claim I know, but I, but I believe that in my lifetime, you know, there's going to be a lot more people talking about it because there's so much there. So the work you're doing is just phenomenal. Thank it's you. amazing. Well, of course, uh, also, and we agree with you, we say there's more under the ground of Giza than there is above the ground. And I think that's, you know, almost already proven because there's so many places that they're digging, looking and going under all the queen pyramids and other things like that. But let me just say what's also interesting is Dr. Jack pointed out in 1973 with his book, The Keys of Enoch, that the um, queen star shaft, yes, thank you, uh, <laughs> points to Sirius yeah. and the king's chamber star shaft or air shaft, as some people call it, points to Orion. So he said that's a little different from what uh, Robert Bavell said, who who pointed that the three pyramids themselves are the belt of Orion. Dr. Jack said also the star shaft points to Orion. So we to feel about specifically to what the three stars called in Arabic, Mintak, Anotak, and Analam. So there's another side to this greater story 
that the ancients in Egypt and later under the Islamic world of astronomy, they recognized that there was a connection there with star intelligence that was very profound. And we believe that our planet has gone through many atmospheric changes where great mm-hmm. civilizations have been simply destroyed quickly in terms of what we would call cataclysmic geology and rebuilt. Brian, mm-hmm. so going back for just a second to Antarctica, uh, we had a very good friend in South Africa, and you probably didn't mention her on your other program. Her name was Elizabeth Clark. And when she was a young girl, she actually had an encounter with an alien. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's been reported she, that was in the 1950s. She wrote about it in the 1970s. And she said that these alien people had lived on Venus, Earth, and Mars. But when the sun was being variable or like too many solar flares, mm-hmm. they realized they had to vacate Venus. And they came and they left people on Earth and on Mars, but they used the underground chambers from time to time in Antarctica. So that was, Mm. she said this and wrote about in the 70s, okay? So it's not anything new. And then she said, and then they ultimately went to the nearest star. Now, we used to think the nearest star was uh, Como Berenices, but she said, no, they went to Centauri. And that's, Mm. you know, Alpha and um, Proxima Centauri is what she said. And she actually supposedly was picked up and went there herself with wow. them. And then they had to bring her back. So, uh, but NASA, NASA confirmed her speculation. And wow. also what we're seeing now, I mean, the sun being a variable star, which Dr. Hurtak also pointed out in the 1973. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we are a little concerned about all the major solar flares, even though it's an 11 year cycle, we're getting close to that solar max. It seems to, from all the data coming up, that there's more solar flares, uh, well, we'll say heightened solar flare activity than there was. And just in 2012, remember how the Mayans, the whole thing yes. with the Mayans 2012? Oh, yes. Well, we missed a Carrington event, which is a massive solar flare, by nine days in 2012. So it was very close. And we do feel that there's certain levels of intelligence that are protecting our planetary oh, system. Yes. We were just down in Mexico with our friend, Jaime Malsan, some people may be familiar with him. He's really the ufologist of Mexico. And he watches uh, a volcano there called Popo. Um, oh. It's the whole name of that. And, uh, you know, he sees UFOs around there all the time. And we yeah. said, look, Jaime, what they're doing is they're trying to protect the volcano from going off because they have much better technology than we do. And they got to do that because if it went off, you'd have problems in two of the major cities in the country of Mexico. So So the pyramids and temples may be chronomonitors or time measuring devices to warn us about planetary cycles. Hmm. Uh, Also reminding us that humanity can survive these great cataclysmic changes. If we have the right psychology and cosmology so I'm optimistic that even with the dangers of what we would call solar max or solar cycle 25, yeah. we will be able, at least in most parts of the world, to bootstrap a whole new cycle of renewal, look mm-hmm. to alternatives and energy and resources largely within our consciousness to say that we are here as part of a much larger evolutionary program. And that that gives us really the certitude to press forward and recognize that in the blue skies of the greater universe, there are other civilizations that have gone through what the ancient Egyptians went through and were able to leave planet Earth mm-hmm. for other solar systems. So we're very optimistic. And I just wanted to remind our viewers that our work also in Mexico with the Pyramids of Yucatan was published in periodical oh, wow. Archaeologia by ENA. ENA is like the Smithsonian Institute in Mexico. It's the most prestigious group of scientists. Mm -hmm. And they carried our article looking at the musical sound testing that we did in the over 15 years. Wow. And this substantiates what we found earlier in Egypt. So we suggest that long before recorded history, the last 7,000 years, navigational cultures had a common musical and mathematical slash astrophysical language in building these pyramids or temples at certain locations to give certitude, to give inspiration, and also to teach us how we have to breathe and use what I would call certain techniques to open our heart, our mind, 
our planetary vision so that we're not captured in the shadow side of life, but we're in the light of the greater universe, the greater yes. mind we call the divine. Yes, because we live in a, in a world where the dominant society is very material orientated. And so our, you know, our young people, unfortunately, are not taught about the true nature of not only the human being, the human heart, you know, what, what we truly are made of, but what this reality is made of. And I, and it's, it, you know, it's, it's so frustrating when you begin to realize how much we're, you know, it's difficult to create a new world when the, when young people are not being taught the truth about this one. And, um, and that's why I, I love what I do because I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm teaching, I have a 10 and a 12 year old, the 10 year old's not so captive of an audience just yet, but my 12 year old is very interested and he's learning like a, like a sponge, but he's, I'm teaching him about everything, you know, and I'm like, you're going to be, you know, very much one of the few people, you know, who, who, who understands these things. And you're going to, you're going to have to teach people when they're interested. Um, because the, the, the world's going to depend on people like you who know. This is know? why we formed the Academy for Future Science, because we believe there always will be a future and there always will be science. But science has to be guided by consciousness. That's the difference. Mm -hmm. Right. And I was going to say, what's so cool is you can teach the kids the power of the mind. I used to do that like, you know, well, what's underneath that card? You know, is right. it a red or a green or <laughs> yellow picture? You know, and they, they can get it. And that's part oh, of the yeah. whole quantum physics. And probably one of our will maybe move into the idea of what mind dynamics is all about, remote viewing, because kids can. And I truly believe especially once they know about it, that they can see things into the future. They can know things on another part of the planet, what's taking place. And when we, there's studies all over the world, the remote viewing studies, especially mm -hmm. those done by Stanford Research Institute, but also our work with uh, Elizabeth Rauscher saying, you know, precognition actually is possible and people are accurate about it. I mean, usually you go like about nine months in uh, the future. One of the things I had a, a girl working for me, I'll call her Jackie. And I, I woke up with the thing, well, Jackie doesn't work here anymore. There was a phone call and I heard that. And I go, well, like, what do you mean? Jackie's like been here for like five, seven years. Why is she yeah. not working here anymore? And what happened eventually in about a month or two is her husband got cancer and demanded that she stop working. Mm. So, I mean, these are things that you can know and yeah. do really in advance. And, and they've done, you know, I, Russell Targ, who's a good friend of ours, oh, yeah. uh, Dr. Hutak co-wrote a book called End of Suffering with them. He actually played the silver market and made money. That was a whole part of the test nice. of that. It's not in this book. This is really how to tr use remote viewing to go beyond suffering. But you see here mm -hmm. through the great elegance of Ingo Swan, the paraphysicist artist, how the human mind is like a cosmic egg and there's a whirling galaxy in the human mind. So under the right conditions, we can be sensitized to reach out beyond the boundaries of the three-dimensional Absolutely, field. we can. And, and, and it see takes other realities. And now, to put this together, this book is The Real X-Files. Oh, and man. in this book, the top 1% of physicists and, and mathematicians we work with did an experiment, as we see here, the area of the campus of Cairo University. And on the other page, the drawings of Elizabeth Rauscher, the co-writer of the book, mm -hmm. pointing out the details of what we eventually saw and experienced without wow. her being there in Egypt, without Very knowing nice. anything about the details at a certain time of the day, we told her to tap into us. And she was able to draw this light pillar, which matches the one that's wow. in the picture with the embellishments, like a very elaborate leaf designed mm -hmm. underneath the, the light bulb itself as well as at the bottom of the light pole. And she counted so the people there. And she Four also, people. And she also said cobalt blue. Which and was the color of the door. enough, the door was cobalt mm. blue. Going to the auditorium. Yeah. So how could she know all these details except on a different frequency, this knowledge is available through what we will call the collective consciousness. Or the quantum field is the yes. way we really perceive it. So we're just beginning to open the door to the multidimensionality of the human mind. And we think this is really what makes us different from AI. We actually do teach about AI at universities. We're just down there in Mexico teaching about it. But, you know, you can say, well, the, you know, AI can do more and know more than we do. And, you know, you get it with Elon Musk who says, if we don't do don't something, quick, they're going to, you know, surpass yeah. us. 
but we have these capacities of knowing. Yes. And that's something that's beyond the internet. Super that's learning. Logic. That's in our soul. That's in our DNA. And Super AI. consciousness. Yes. Right. It's in our DNA. And we're beginning to realize through mind dynamics, the great opportunity we have rather than going the way of being being, uh, shall we say, victimized by too many robotic insertions mm -hmm. into our brain tissue. <laughs> We're here making a quantum change. And what this book, Mind Dynamics, tells us is science has proved on the highest level, one of the greatest think tanks, Stanford Research Institute, over 20 years of studies have shown that we are multidimensional humans. We are non-local. We're here, but we're also in other yes. dimensions. If we wish, and we can use this power as we showed in Egypt, not to spend 30 years digging underneath the sands of Egypt. We can go there with the power of the mind and know specifically where to go and save the time and effort. And this is what we believe to be the breakthrough now taking place between past and future. We are in that unique area of rediscovering our potential. But we have to understand this is a potential for good science, science oriented by the heart, mind, and soul or spirit, this is an opportunity for collective wisdom to help all cultures and people. This is the time also to understand the possibility that we are connected with the universal mind, which would mean other cosmic cultures do exist as astronaut Gordon Cooper and astronaut Ed Mitchell, colleagues of ours, suggested when they were in outer space. So we're beginning to realize this tremendous opportunity not to see the end of history, the end of the planet, but the beginning of a whole new concept of planetary evolution where we're going into space, we're reinventing ourselves in a positive way, and we're moving away from the negative pessimism and the paradigms of disaster that yeah. have plagued humanity by unnecessary wars and manipulations of economies. But yes. our ability is amazing. And uh, just for the entertainment of your audience, University of Colorado Boulder, you can do the research, took amateurs and took 10 people and they analyzed whether the stock market was going to go up or down. They did this in something like about six different dates in a mm -hmm. particular year. And as a collective, they were a hundred percent right. So wow. they could buy and sell. I wouldn't recommend it for everyone, but, but all this also gets down to the fact that we have this ability to tap into yes. a higher quantum consciousness field. And I believe that that's also what extraterrestrials are able to do as well. Uh, we've been part of a book called Contact by Alan, uh, Making Contact, actually, by Alan Steinfeld. Steinfeld yes. And the uh, idea that as soon as you um, have had any connection with an extraterrestrial vehicle, doesn't have to be an entity appearing in your room, just something that's real up in the sky, you've made that entanglement. And that's a term in quantum physics that you're then connected. But we're entangled with everybody and everything almost all the time. So we have the ability to know and do more. And I believe that's how we're getting a lot of downloads. We're here in Silicon Valley. And mm -hmm. there are people who you know, like you almost saw at the beginning of the Oppenheimer film, if you remember that, and mm. Beautiful Mind, they, they get downloads yes. of technology, hopefully for the good, to help Mother Earth. We think that's what's happening right now. We're we're progressing. In fact, the yes. Keys of Enoch said we would have 64 areas of science. We'll take a quantum leap so that we're prepared for our own connection with cosmic intelligence. And I think the strangest thing on cosmic intelligence is not all of them are greys, not all of them are reptilians. Some of them are like us. Yes, very much like us. Um, and and I, that's going to probably be the most shocking thing for humanity to to see the reflection of themselves in, in these beings uh, who I think had a, a very big hand in creating and, and designing this amazing technology this human um and we are so blessed and gifted to have this technology and and this world we live in i i'm i, I believe that wholeheartedly i was just talking to uh, a documentary a documentary director who directed unacknowledged and close encounters of the fifth kind and and some of dr stephen greer's work and i was telling him this crazy story i had where i i connected and it was it was just like you said it was such an entanglement with this with this um, ship, I was in New I was in living in Manhattan at the time, so I don't know what I was thinking, trying to get a ship to <laughs> show up in the middle of the oh, city for me. But 
what happened? I was so deep in this, in this, this beautiful nothing, this black void. And then all of a sudden, just never anything like this has ever happened to me. Um, you know, it wasn't a dream. Uh, it was just bang. This ship showed up clear, vivid, and, and just connected with me. And I was like, hi. <laughs> and I just got this, this greeting, you know, this sense of hello and connection with them. And then I, I, I sensed that they had to move off. And I was just like, thank you so much. You know, um, me sitting in, uh, on my, on my roof in Manhattan with a headlamp on. <laughs> um, well, we honor your contact experience. Awesome. But yeah. The question is what happens after contact? There has to be positive psychology and mm -hmm. sociology. Otherwise it can be a situation of an experimental culture that can work adversely. And this is why I believe our government and other governments have been rather reluctant to put all the cards on the table because what we find here on Earth is also in outer space. There is rivalries. There are situations that may be unpleasant to our logic. But again, we push the envelope of knowledge forward, looking at discernment and abilities to use our educational capacities to work on the highest level possible, which is not the ET, but the what we call the UT, the ultra-terrestrial, those who have gone beyond material evolution. Right. Yeah. So we write in uh, Making Contact, we're one of the chapters that there's, we consider three levels of intelligence, extraterrestrials, which are bound are around within us. the material evolution. <laughs> yeah, usually mm -hmm. meaning more, more extended, of course, by they, a million years. They can work in the fifth dimension so they can go through walls. Then there's right. extracelestials, and we have friends that have encountered them. They're usually not materializing except on occasion in your Spheres bedroom. Spheres of light, geometries yeah. of light. Yes. And then there's ultra-terrestrials, which are really much more here also to help us. So we do believe there's different levels Absolutely. of intelligence. And we, were, uh, we did a show with uh, uh, Jamie Foxx about his moment of contact. That was the Vargina case about alien technology and, and this being that appeared a couple in of January weeks. of 1996. It was like a, mm. a kind of grayish green being and then it had like red eyes and it was very very strange this is in Virginia, brazil and yeah. it's pretty much a very documented case it is, but yes. what's really interesting is that we brought up at the end of it because we were pretty well versed in in the uh information is roger lear right went uh down to dr roger lear dr roger lear mm -hmm. from los angeles he was uh, a podiatrist i believe went down he used to take out uh, implants on people. But anyway, mm. he went down and interviewed the doctors who had taken care of these aliens. And mm. when they were trying to uh, live, they were giving mental communication to the doctors how to help them. Yeah. And then at one point he recorded, and I'm just going to paraphrase, um, he recorded in his notes that the alien said to the doctor, oh, it's very sad. You don't know who you are. And you humans mm. do not know your cosmic potential. That's right. That's yeah. right. So, I mean, we are, you know, we've been dumbed down here, but I think all that's changing. We're it getting changing. to know, you know, the pyramids, like you said, all the things that have gone on in the past, the present, and yeah. now the future is really coming to our doorstep. So Absolutely. there's more to the picture than just the pyramid. <laughs> I brought with me for our little talk this evening, several other pictures. One in Mexico shows a paraphysical light that takes a form from what looks like to be a dove or a bird that appears mm. next to the gentleman by the pyramid in a state of meditation. So it's the paranormal aspect that we believe is the most important, not the historic monument yeah. or pyramid, which is a sign of a vortex or gathering area of energy, but what comes out of this contact experience, the power of the mind, once excited, once energized, and clearly, we're beginning to work now with a whole new psychology of futurism, of realizing that there are higher levels of the mind, higher levels of what the ancients call the chakras, that create the higher self or the over-self that gives us the abilities to work with the other dimensional intelligences. And you are familiar with our other book called The Over-Self Awakening, mm. which takes the reader through what we would call a sacred geometry, where he or she... Uh, 72 phases of consciousness. As we awakening. see here, begins to realize, as we see at the bottom of the screen, the different mm. energy centers. Yeah. Learning on Mother Earth and how this is synthesized through the power of the expanded heart, the compassion, which is generally seen in most cultures as the sign of the divine feminine. Because we believe that 
science has to open up now the right hemisphere, Absolutely. the brain, the fem female or the metaphysical side to see the greater picture. Because we also think the pyramid is really just, it's a central control mechanism, but it's tied into the vortices of sacred areas all around the globe and also into the heavens. So mm -hmm. it's all a bunch of networks. You're saying speak. the pyramid is an archetype of consciousness found in most cultures of the world. But it's reason. also networked And together. I believe in probably on most think. worlds, too. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's not a – there's no coincidences. I don't believe in them anymore. But um, I, what, I, what was I going to say? I, I, I had so many things I wanted to say. But one of the reasons I'm talking to you is because I, 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 I went on this – heart opening journey 12 years ago. And that's led me into all this amazing information. And I learned how to open my heart and I healed myself of a lot of trauma and, and all, all, all these roads led right to this center. And, and it's the greatest gift I ever gave myself. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm free of all the old, well, most of the old programming and, and that identity I was tied in and it's it leads me to beautiful people like you. And if science, whatever, I mean, just allow for, you know, more of these things and, and start to take into account, then this, we, the world could transform in a generation. So we, we have to do it. If we're going to, if we're going to pull through some of the, some of the dark dynamics of this society and the control mechanisms in place, and it's going to be through this kind of, of work and these kind of talks and this kind of consciousness because it's the only way out, you know. Well, you're um, a futurist as well as a cosmic catalyst. You see the importance, your age, reaching through the Internet. We're building an electronic university where young people can be brought from negativity into positive creativity or co-creativity where they see there's a higher roadmap. That there's an importance to the human mind. We would call it the, the Greeks call it psyche or the soul. And in all major traditions, there was a recognition that the soul or the higher consciousness survives the short life of the mortal physical garment that we put on called the human body. And that, that higher consciousness is a clue to the, shall we say, the reinvesting of life in a variety of other biological forms. I call it biogenesis. The journey of cosmogenesis and biogenesis is now coming closer because of what we've seen in outer space. And this is uh, in other projects that we work with, the possibility of intelligent life in the universe, the possibility of cosmic law. Preparing us for contact would mean that these yeah. other forms have gone through our evolutionary phase and could help us overcome the dualism and the breakage that we have between the various cultures that are technically and ideologically at war with one another mm -hmm. because they do not see the common basis of compassion, mm -hmm. love, and the divine spark. It brings all of us together. But I think it's very important, you know, what you experience and people sometimes spend a lifetime trying to figure out, you know, how they had this mother and why they had that father. If they realize that they did it and they, they incarnated into that reality <laughs> so that they could learn to move forward or mm. learn from that and then move and take the steps that they need to transform it then they understand that this planet really is a planet of soul growth and yeah. the circumstances that we're in the midst of, whether, you know, do we like each other or do we not like each other? <laughs> that's all stuff. It's well, there's another book. I hate to say all the books we've been part of, but one's called our moment of choice. And mm -hmm. there's about 40 different uh, scholars writing in that, but we believe every moment is our moment of choice. That's the planet we're living in. So we all have to choose yes. at every moment to move into peace, into love, into greater heart, or to stay back in the old scenario. It's, it's an amazing but this thing. This does not really come through mathematical formulas. It comes through experience of the energy field right. itself. And this is why we emphasize in our new book, Sound, it's the soundscape. It's the ability to swim in an ocean of sound dynamics. It's the ability to breathe and, and listen to the beauty of the birds, the tree leaves, see the color patterns yeah. of the, shall we say, the greater spectrum of life. To become multidimensional means to be able to put on what the ancient scriptures call Joseph's coat of many colors, mm -hmm. the investiture of a higher sense of knowing what life is all about. Life is the engineering of cosmic opportunities in the, the soundscape is something we must daily sound in our prayer or meditation, if we wish, 
or the use of creative music or sound mm-hmm. and the ability to enliven ourselves so we don't fall asleep at the wheel and say, oh, this is just intellectual guesswork. No, this is not. This is the science of the future. Science guided by consciousness. Science guided by the heart. Science that sees that we are part of a eternal family of creative beingness. And I just yes. want to say in terms of quantum physics, that every possibility is out there. That's what's scary about the quantum computer, because a quantum computer takes like every possibility of your password and puts it together until it opens and it does it in like less than 30 seconds. So that's what a quantum computer is. But it's the same thing. We're part of this quantum field where all possibilities are really in front of us. We simply have to choose the right one that can help us move into a greater understanding of who we are and how to help. So every moment is part of that understanding. So we are all quantum computers. We just keep selecting usually the negative or the lowest common denominator instead of our own greater potential. Because we select from the past instead of being present and allowing the universe to surprise us and staying conscious in the moment. And, and that comes from bad programming, you know, not, not necessarily bad parenting, but, but, but programming that is like we were talking about is, it's kind of a miseducation that we get. You know, we get conditional love from our parents. Mm, that's just the way it is. It's not, we love our parents, but we're taught in a way, conditional love. If you're bad, you're, you know, you're grounded, you're out of here. I'm not talking to you. You know, it's not, it's not exactly the kind of love the universe and God has for us, you know, which is unconditional. So I think that, you know, one of the keys and things I talk about on my show is the more you can um, habituate being present and allowing the universe to surprise you, even though you may not know, because the unknown is scary for people. That's when all the magic happens. That's when all the synchronicities happen, you know, but you got to get rid of that. The, the part of you that is thinking and projecting from the past, which is probably a traumatized past into this present state, which is clear and open, you know, and, and I, it's one of the things I'm passionate about teaching people to try to understand because they want these new outcomes in their life but they don't realize they're projecting from a, from a shitty past, you know, and, <laughs> and, and they're manifesting from that. So you got to clear that away so you can start anew. And, and, you know, it's one of the things I've learned to do and I talk about a lot, but yeah. Well, so well, we wanted to congratulate also your name, Faust. Did you choose that name or your parents chose it? My parents, very that, that, my, that is my real name. And my parents chose that name. Not because they were well read um, or were aware of you know all the all the wonderful and, and epic literature, but because um, it was my my uncle's name. No, it was my it was my grandfather's name. I was an identical twin, and my twin brother's name is Frank. And in the womb, Frank and I were always jostling for space. And my mother would always comment, "There they go again. Fight. They must be fighting." And my my grandfather who i'm named after was always fighting with his brother so she goes just like faust and frank and so that's how we ended up with our names let me give you let me give you a little background too my great uh celebrities uh in historic authorship is thomas mann the great german writer who wrote a book called dr faustus and of course goethe the 19th century german philosopher uh one who was compared with shakespeare wrote also the famous book called Faust. Yes, I've read In both. the struggle of the human soul with Mephistopheles, really the negative spirit world that wants to create uh, cruelty and death as opposed to life and purpose. And Thomas Mann and his beautiful excellence uh, wrote a series of books called Joseph and His Brothers, the tale of Egypt and how Joseph received this knowledge to bring back his brothers who sold him into slavery. And how we, like you, are trying to bring humanity out of economic three-dimensional mm-hmm. slavery or being slaves to mechanical society to be living experts, living uh, vehicles, I would say, of the greater essence of life and purpose. So yeah. it's a great name because it illustrates really the upper thrust, the upper victory, if one stays the course. Yes. So I just want to add our own personal belief, which goes into our book, Over Self-Awakening, is the fact that we're in a material body right now. We can all understand that. But in addition to that, we have a higher self. And that higher self is always trying to get through to us with a higher perspective. And for the most part, yeah, we are stuck into the past uh, in terms of how we make our decisions. But if we would allow that higher self, which has higher 
like an overview effect. That mm-hmm. was something that Edgar Mitchell mentioned when he came back from being out of space, when he has this overview effect of seeing things, not only past, present and future, but also around the world and knowing everything. It tries to also help us, the higher self, to make the right decisions, but we usually block it. So if we can be open to that higher, we'll say the activation of the seventh chakra with what we call the eighth chakra, we can bring forth a greater life and be at the right place in the right time. And I think right right now we all need to start working with our higher self to be in the right place at the right time. It's the first thing I learned to do. It's, it's, It's where you have to start. You have to start working with your higher self. It may sound woo-woo to some of you, although if you've been listening this long, it, you're probably well past that. Um, but, but absolutely that's, that's where I started, you know, and then from, from there you can continue to get your roots into this beautiful earth and then out into the stars. That's how the journey has gone for me. And, and I, and I believe that's kind of the way it goes, you know, so I encourage everyone don't, don't be shy. <laughs> Work it with usually takes 30 self. years to 50 years in the scientific community to accept a new idea. But the keys published 50 years ago, I'm illustrating this in one of our schematics, show areas mm-hmm. of the planet that were historically in places of contact. Mm-hmm. And again, those of you interested in this book, be aware that we have films now to go with the keys of Enoch, archaeological and, and uh, journeys, yeah. anthropological uh, quest that we've documented, and as Desiree is illustrating this also, a world map of actual confirmations that have taken place. We turn to key 215. No, that's okay. I think we should probably be wrapping this up. I I love how we've uh, kind of... This world map I'm referring to... I'll be able to, because I'll be able to... I have the book, so I'll be able to... Takes one from the Far East, from the findings in Indonesia on the island of yeah Flores. Flores. Yeah. All okay. the way to Africa with the gigantic footprints. Well, well, let me show this picture instead because this is more like what we were talking about. So this is who we are now. Yeah. This is where we need to uh, transform because most people think in this reality and this mm. is who we truly are. Multidimensional beings. Yes. So we come off the philosopher's stone. We're too much self-analysis or self-paralysis. We go beyond the critical situation that we've locked ourselves into three-dimensional thinking, and we began to make use of all of the great work that's excited young engineers, thinkers, educators throughout the world. We're realizing we're just about to take this quantum leap from humankind to space kind. We're just about to understand why we need space law to use the resources of outer space to help humanity on this planet in the next hundred years. And to take the quantum leap of consciousness to realize that it is the higher understanding of evolution, what we call in the keys of Enoch, the higher evolution that provides an understanding of the greater minds of the universe who are behind even extraterrestrial civilization going through Mm -hmm. its baby steps of colonizing planets and awakening within us the opportunity we have to go beyond the political and economic paradigm into one of a new spirituality where we begin to realize the left and right hemisphere, the scientific and the spiritual must come together mm-hmm. if we are to be ultimately multidimensional in co-creativity. So this is a great opportunity that we really are a part of, and all of you who are watching this dialogue yes. should be aware that the Academy for Future Science, through its musicians and artists, film directors, and archaeologists, provides a whole new threshold Yes, we're going to include links to everything. Man, I didn't even. We're going to have to talk again about remote viewing. We didn't even get a chance to get to get too much into it, and I and I love the subject. Um, so we'll just have to we'll just have to do it again. I I, I know you guys, um, um, we're running low on time, but, but well, that's okay. And until then, let me just say, you want to talk about remote viewing for all your audience. If you want to practice before you pick up your cell phone when it's ringing. See who you think it is, and you'll start developing your own remote viewing capability. There's also this app you guys can download. I know you guys know this app. Um, I think that's from Russell Targ. It is Russell's. It is Russell's. Yeah. My my kids, they always do better than me at this. I'm like, give me that. (laughs) You can't even go to Vegas. You're not useful in Vegas. You're only 12. But this one's fun too, um, and that's free. I think it's it's a free app. You know, if you want. Well, to- let me just say this: 
very important thing. We work with what we call immersion in film, where the viewer is able to go into the film experience, what I call swimming in hyperspace. We begin to see a variety of geometric forms, and then you learn to navigate between these geometric forms and realize your potential of multidimensional synthesis. So this film uh, called The Light Body is one I highly recommend. You can experience more than 30 minutes, according to one scientist we work with, than 30 years of working with actual textbooks. We're not into textbooks. We're into living experiences of knowledge. So this is mm -hmm. where we take off. We are at a threshold where we have to catch up very quickly. The signs and the scientific papers from the United Nations and from government think tanks all speak about climate change and the death of this and this and that. Let's begin to speak about the life. Mm -hmm. Let's speak about the co-engineering of energy and food out of the oceans. Let us think about the experience of future conversation with friends from other parts of the greater universe. And let us think about our cosmic potential with the Christ figure in the New Testament called the House of Many Mansions, that we are simply beginning to wake up and realize, wow, we're just on one little chakra level, one little point of our navel, and we got to move up into our heart, That's right. into our, the power of the greater mind, into the power of the greater spirit, if we're going to be part of this great cosmic civilization on our doorstep. But we want to thank you, Faust. We want to thank you and your program for reaching out to us. And being what you are, which is the beacon of light to the future, future humanity, that is the theme of the great leap forward, the great understanding that we are part of a greater family creation. Thank you guys so much for your time. It's a dream come true to talk to you. Um, we'll we'll, uh, we'll have to do it again. There's just so much to talk about, and, and I and I I love learning from you guys, and I'm sure my audience is going to feel the same way. Um, so so wonderful. To, to hear you speak and to talk to you. So much information. Um, I'm so grateful that you shared more of your wisdom with me. I look for, I have a lot of more reading to do, but I'll be in touch and, and, and we'll have to do it again one time. Thank you guys so much. I'm Thank sure I'm going to see you again soon at, a, at one of the conferences I attend and I look forward to, to saying hello. Much love to both of you. Thank Blessings. you. Thank you so much. Take care.